Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product professionals from Ibotta share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kevin Gentry. Lou Cirillo. Patrick Kuchkowski. I'm Jake Worland. And today, we are going to discuss <laughs> the five lies product managers tell um, themselves. So I thought this, uh, Lou thought this was pretty interesting um, to kind of go and critique each lie and see how that kind of applies in our um, scenario uh, as, as PMs at Ibotta. Um, it is also our one-year anniversary of being a podcast, so thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Um, but with that, let's let's kick off the topic. I think this one's a fun one. Lou, you want to kick it off? Yeah, no. It's funny is I I feel like as a PM, every once in a while, it's good to like you know check in on the news. I think this article is a little old. It's put up on the product plan uh, website, and lie number one here is uh, they say is. I am the CEO of my product. Uh, they explain that the reason why this is a lie is that you don't have the quote authority to boss around your CTO, biz, or your VP of ops. And it doesn't even mean you can add the title CEO to your email signature. I mean, that's just kind of funny, but uh, in a way I, it's funny. It's funny because I've actually used that description for what product is and and your and my engineering manager is kind of like being the cto of the of the product yeah i don't know have you guys used that moniker at all just when you talk about it well i definitely think so i think it was i don't know where exactly i read that first was it in agile uh the the lean startup book or something but i i feel like one of those early on pm kind of education classes always teaches you as that, you know, you are the CEO of the product. So then you kind of always have that mindset going into it, especially as a new PM. But uh, I always thought that's interesting. It's funny it because out that way. Yeah. Like I almost took the exact opposite approach uh, strictly because most of the articles and things when I was getting into product was, you know, there is this thing, but it's like, it is very much a falsehood, like stay away from it as much as possible. If only because you're likely to develop an ego and then do something really dumb where <laughs> you're essentially like, damn it, this is super important. Someone's like, we really don't care. Like move out of the way. Like we actually have real initiatives. I kind of, I kind of find it funny in that I, I agree with you, Patrick. And then at the same time, I also think that it kind of reminds me of, of startup world, you know, where I kind of came from and being the CEO was a lot more like being a product manager in a startup. Um, because you are, you know, effectively working on product, you're working with sales, you're working with monic- and marketing, almost in the same way that you did. I, I think in that, right, though, yeah, removing the ego from it is uh, pretty valid in this particular context. Yeah, I think those who start ego first, um, probably myself, I, I've done that many of times, 
then um, you, you learn fast, which is a good thing. I mean, you, you fail a lot, <laughs> but you definitely learn fast. But I like that kind of putting it on its head a bit where um, you actually, I think that's what Marty Kagan said in, in the, um, his latest book, uh, Inspired, um, where that CEO is kind of the first product manager. Um, so kind of like, you know, putting that lens on is kind of interesting too. Well, that almost seems to um, dovetail into lie number two here. Um, the conclusion from lie number one was basically don't take the CEO moniker seriously. So I think what we all agree maybe lie number one in this one may be kind of correct. Yeah, I think so. Anyone? Sounds like Patrick was, yeah. <laughs> was definite, uh, definite on that one. Yeah, I think it... From kind of some of the other podcasts we recorded, I think it does definitely depend a little bit on the size of the the company you're at. Um, obviously, if you're the you know one of the first product managers, you'll have an inflated uh, job role. But yeah, you are still not the CEO. CEO has very different responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lie number two: All product decisions need to go through me. I feel like this is probably one that Jake has been dealing with recently. I'll let him kick it off on this. I feel like it's an extension of lie number one. Like you are not the center of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Is there, is there specific uh, scenarios that you've gone through recently, Jake on this one? Um, I suppose sort of, um, maybe I've kind of backed into a situation where a lot of the product decisions are running through me rightly or wrongly. Um, but that's mainly a function of looking across a lot of different teams and making sure that the priorities are aligned across all of those teams. So I don't, I find that I'm not making the decisions per se, but I'm oftentimes at the table when those decisions are made. I was actually going to say, Jake, that you've done actually a fantastic job of delegating recently, which is kind of, I oh, think, the, the antidote. <laughs> yeah, the, fan of, the antidote to lie number two. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of the piece here. It's like I, I've always kind of viewed, even in like my own squad, like I don't know everything. One of the recent areas where I've definitely struggled has been um, a lot of the technical user acquisition tracking requirements for my products simply just because I don't have the knowledge base on what it takes to implement those. Um, And to that level, I mean, I had our tech lead. I just said, look, you know, uh, I'm going to have you join all these meetings and I'm expecting you to tell me what the scope of this um, particular epic should be. And, you know, I think that's completely, you know, fair way to do it. Anybody else ever take that tactic? Yeah, I think delegating, um, especially when you're at a smaller size or like scrappier um, startup mentality where you're trying to do a lot of things um, is is nice to, to have, right? Like to be able to delegate and to, you know, get a project stood up in some sense and have this person go run with it and, and kind of coach them along the way a little bit um, when needed. I think that's a, a necessary skill of a PM to kind of, uh, to do something like that. Um, cause you will constantly be doing things like that, but yeah, but Lou, to your point, I, I, I think I kind of will take the same tactic quite a bit where it is essentially you're going to, there's only so much you can do and there's only so much you can control and even, you know, work in a given day. And so if you're not delegating and specifically those things that you have lower domain expertise or that there are subject matter experts like engineering 
like marketing others. And, and I know the article calls it out, but that really is kind of the, the crux of this. I know in, in previous lives, you know, it's been something I had to struggle with and get over, which was, hey, every decision doesn't have to come through you. You don't have to, you know, make every single decision as well. And if you grant people autonomy, you'll generally be surprised by what they come up with. The biggest thing there, though, that a PM brings is the why. You have to set a why and you have to set, generally speaking, some sort of timeline so people can feel motivated, but then just get out of their way and let them deliver. Yeah. Lean on your experts. And I like those parameters, the why and the, and the time. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. It also, it's a nice way to empower your team to make them feel like they have ownership in the product that you're building as well if they're the ones making the decisions. You know, even things that, you know, we just did a kind of design review with our squad the other day just to get their input on how to do a few things better. And mostly I just kind of left it open and let them kind of put ideas out there and, you know, co- you know, pushed it one direction here or there. But otherwise, I think it's a very, it's a good way to get some of the best work as a product manager out of your team. It's kind of an art, right? Like you set the boundaries of the conversation and then you just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty true. Sometimes I can even struggle a little bit with shutting up. Yeah. I should probably work on that a bit more. <laughs> okay, so uh, lie number two, correct or incorrect? I'd say correct. Well... I think, yes, it is a it's, lie. It's correct. It's a lie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lie. Basically, if you... if you absolutely fall, a lie. <laughs> yeah, it'll be in a world of hurt if you uh, think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> if you're running all product decisions through you as the product manager, your product probably sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably very valid. All right. Let's see here. Lie number three... Our survey says we should do this, so we should do it. Oh, man, this this kind of comes back. At, oh, I, I think love this, is, this one. Yeah, this is fantastic. I actually think this comes back on, it, for us, I think it's like the struggle of user research and letting user research or anything else kind of dictate the direction of your product. All right, who wants to take a first one. stab? <laughs> the power of that sample size of five. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Who I I don't necessarily have too many. Um, I, I I don't work on a front end facing product as much. We work more on the platform side. So the the data tells a different story um, when you're running tests. Uh, but I'm curious to those who work on the front end a little more when you run those A/B or multivariate tests. Um, what do you kind of how what experiences do you have? with that data and, and making decisions. Patrick, I know that you have a lot. Yep, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick. <laughs> like how many tests are you running right now? How many users are being subjected to like version one through a hundred? Um, yeah, I do this a ton, especially with user acquisition and uh, login. And then once you're in the app for onboarding, uh, it's to Jake's point, we do a ton of smaller uh, guided research sessions. So we'll do you know, both compatibility and kind of user testing to make sure it works, um, as well as get their thoughts. But then from an A-B test, we'll often, so I, sh- I should step back. So we'll generally, before we go into something, we'll do moderated and unmoderated user research. And so you have to be careful about the sample size. 
because if you have five people, then you might be skewed a little bit. If you have an unmoderated one of 100, you're starting to move towards statistical significance. But then it's a lot of, let's take a, a bet in a lot of ways for yeah. one through four of our A-B tests and try and run it. The challenge is, is to hit statistical significance, then you're looking at, you know, four weeks. Sometimes we're running outliers with, you know, tests for 90 days. And so once you have that data, it's generally pretty conclusive. I think this lies specifically saying, hey, I heard we put out a survey to the whole population. They're like, you know, the one thing we really want is a blue checkbox in the top right corner. You know, it's never that specific. It's like, give me this general thing that's like super important that means the whole world to us. But oftentimes the thing we always forget about is surveys, larger unmoderated, you know, questions and those sorts of things are honing in on the most interested, the most dedicated people on your platform who are going to have an outsized impact or potentially outsized opinion of very specific features. It's like the if you go on a forum for, you know, like a game or a book, you're going to always find these certain opinions, like, and oftentimes the negative ones are going to outweigh the positive. So be very careful and balance it. Look for the data, you know, use your best judgment, but don't discard those five people's opinions, let it influence you and then get to data. Kevin, to your point, because the data is really where it's going to live, but the user experience has to be moderated first to get there. Yeah. I think I think there's a, a unique balancing act with this one, right? So I think a survey should be one data point that you use in your product decision, right? So UX research is just one thing that we do. Um, in our, in our squad, it's like, you know, we kind of use it as a nice way to validate maybe some of our assumptions or maybe to test out new features or ideas. But I'd say it's that one. The second thing we always think about is engineering level of effort, right? Maybe the perfect solution regarded in the survey is, you know, exactly what they want, but it might be super high level of effort for engineering and it may have low incremental value to your bottom line. So I think, you know, if you're balancing the survey thing, survey is part one. Part two is impact it's expected to drive. Part three is engineering level of effort. And ultimately, it leads to return on investment. And that's kind of what we're expecting to, you know, to do with this. So I, I definitely in this particular say, you know, piece say survey data is great to help influence certain decisions. Um, but it's not the be all end all, in my opinion. Well, and Kevin and Jake, you probably see this as well. So I think we also fall into a lot of pitfalls about the context of when we're asking people for information. For instance, in the app, after you've done a couple actions, we'll generally say, do you, do you like Ibotta? Rate, you know, rate us. If you don't, tell us why. And even that can be, you know, because of the context of when we're asking and the fact that we're interrupting them, they may be more prone to give us either negative experiences or if they expect it can be rewarded, positive experiences. Yeah. So how I know you guys have used MPS scores and other things in the past. I think sometimes those have their own traps. Have you ever fallen into them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I've used CSAT. Um, I've used MPS in the past, but most recently I'm using CSAT. And I try to do that on a regular cadence, like once a month to get gathered for some feedback. But I mean, you're still capturing a small percentage of the population. I'm sure 
and, and most likely the most vocal, right? So it's probably they're, they're really upset at something or, um, you know, they're really happy with something. So I think that it tries to normalize that, um, those experiences, but it's only a segment of the population that you're, you're surveying to. Um, so you, it's interesting. And, and, and I've actually followed down some of those threads, like some of the responses of like, why did you rank it this way? Um, and, and to drill into it and like, Oh, it was only that. And then they completely changed their score. So I think just that whole experience of going down that rabbit hole, I'm like, well, how true are these? Like, how good is it to like, yeah. What, what, what should we do with this data? Right? Like, is it actually accurate or is it just kind of like a, a some random score? <laughs> and I think it, like Patrick said, it depends on when you're asking and the time of day. Like I think, it, you know, after the work from home orders and like, sending a survey right after that, you're going to get a lot of different responses before it. And, and I don't know, there's a lot of outside influence and timing goes into it. So it, and like what Lou said, I think that's just one data point. I think if you treat it as just one data point and you don't treat it as the end all be all, then I think you'll be in a good spot. Okay. So lie number three, is it a lie? I think so. I think we're three for three. Three for three. All right. All right. Lie number four. Quote, I am not in sales or marketing. Kevin, I think you should start us off on this. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think I, I actually come from sales background, too. So I'm, I'm pretty used to it. Um, I think it's interesting. I don't know exactly how. Uh, I, let me read exactly what they're saying here. As kind of a, an aside, the um, I'd say like, even if you aren't directly involved in it, you probably should be as a product manager. Right. I mean, I routinely, if anything, I've sat in on calls, I've sat in on sales meetings with our partners, with our customers. Um, the whole objective for building a product is you want to understand who's consuming it and what their pain points are. And frankly, if, yeah. you're, if you're not right. alongside your sales guys. You also are a salesperson and a marketer all day. Just a lot of it's internal, but you're yeah. doing that. Like that's, that's a huge part of the job. Probably. I mean, if you had a big pie chart, I would be up there in the top two or three segments, slices of that pie. Yeah. What are the, what are the things that we become sales and marketers for? I think one of those for me is um, you're, you're always selling the work that you're doing. I think you're always selling that and you're always marketing the team, the value of the work you're calling out wins. You're, you're calling out impact. Like that's, that's a constant as a PM. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. you're always selling your success, right? Like you're always trying to advance the state of your product, your team, your group, you know, I mean, what you have to sell at the end of the day is often your strategy and get buy-in from everybody else on it. Yeah. I kind of challenge the purpose of this question a little bit, though, too, because generally I'd say that's true, especially for front-facing PMs. However, in a much larger company, it's entirely possible that you're disassociated entirely from the sales and marketing team. A good example is a DevOps product manager. Yes, you need to be out selling a product. Yes, you need to be out interacting. However, at day's end, you may not interact directly with sales. I think there should be touch points, but I do think it. you have to be sensitive to the fact that you 
will interact with them, but not necessarily contribute or influence it in every single role. So I think no, it's, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point where you're not influencing the sales team, but I think you're also selling maybe developers on the strategy or you're selling the CTO. So I think you, you act as that salesperson, but you're not necessarily interacting with the team as much. I just want to clarify that. I think the lie can be true potentially in a lot of cases, but it can also be false depending on role or size of company. Yeah, I definitely can agree with you there, Patrick. It's kind of the um, age old, is it sales and marketing if it's still kind of internal or maybe you don't have as much customer facing and everything else. Okay, well, since we're, we're coming up on time, the last one here, which this might as well be a joke. Um, <laughs> product management line number five. I don't need a roadmap because we're an agile team. Who wants to start us off on that one? How long of a roadmap? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's an interesting question. So we, we, I think, at Ibotta have struggled between, you know, are we making six months or 12-month roadmaps? Um, I actually have roadmap review right after this with, um, you know, our product department and some members of our senior leadership team. Um, I think the aspect of the way that I treat roadmaps is that, yes, you always need to have one because if anything, it always kind of signals, well, you know what, at least we have our thoughts together on something to build next. And you can, and I would say I update and change my roadmap on a weekly, bi-weekly basis anytime some new data point comes in. So I think you should still have one, but I think it's a living copy of the what we're doing in the next six like I would say if you you should have a quarter at least decently well thought out at any given time. Six or 12 months, if you're an agile team, you're probably going to pivot. But I would still do it just for the sake of the exercise. I think there's, there's also a little bit of a uh, another trap in the wording of this line, I think, which is agile. <laughs> How many people have actually read the Agile Manifesto and know what the heck was going on 30 years ago when it was published? And that's the problem. No <laughs> one knows what the hell Agile is anymore or why it was actually created and turned. And, and so that's where I laugh because now we've morphed it into something different rather than essentially where, you know, this laborious process that would take 10 years, like, you know, it's how the, you know, in the, the early 2000s, like the FBI squandered millions of dollars trying to develop software that they chucked out. So it was much more about like, it's not this hard fixed thing that we have to do waterfall for six years and then never talk about or invest in and look at. It's like, we can be, you know, agile. We can adjust things on the fly, but it wasn't written for a three month roadmap. It was written for a two year roadmap in a lot of ways. So it's, yes, a roadmap is very necessary. I think the product profession has morphed quite a bit since some of those words were used. So I think, yes, the roadmap is critical, even just to put your thoughts on paper, like you mentioned. But I also just laughed every time the word agile comes up now, especially as a, a methodology and framework. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I think it, overall, just having that... Um, sense of timing is super important. If you have stakeholders that really depend on your product and you're, you're dependent, um, yeah, your dependency for that, their success. Um, 
which it should be, right? It shouldn't just have, uh, be delivering value at a silo. It's kind of weird. Um, but I, I think what Lou said was right, like having that short term pretty well figured out the quarter. Um, I wonder, Lou, like if you're changing things pretty constantly, is it – how do you guys communicate that? How do you communicate the changes out and like what cadence and – um, well, I think here, I mean, we have these roadmap reviews that are pretty constant. I would say that, um, you know, based on the type of work we're doing right now, where there's a lot of high touch points with senior leadership, we have pretty weekly check-ins and should things come up, you know, those are great opportunities to voice them. I think one that um, it's a small point, uh, point, but it's likely going to cause maybe a little bit of delay in our current work is we have to build kind of a new pre-production environment. It's a pretty low level lift for us, but that's something that I'll definitely, you know, be communicating out. And that's a, that's a change, right? Like that's additional work that, you know, got slotted into a timeline, um, you know, that we want to, that we want to make an account of, and it may be small, right? This is probably a, a half a day to a day's worth of work for one of our engineers, but it's worth calling it out. And I think if you are comfortable calling out, you know, even the little things or the bigger things um, and just talking about it, it's a good way to build trust and a good way for people to understand what you're working on. Um, I think with that. Yeah. Overall, how do we vote this last one? Definitely a lie. Yeah. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to uh, throw this link uh, out to the article in, in the episode description so you can take a look. Um, and thank you guys for a year of listening and subscribing and um, yeah it looks like we finished our coffee so go level up